Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by NetHealth. NetHealth has an all-in-one EMR patient management tool called Redoc, powered by XFIT. So it is a cloud-based, fully integrated EMR and billing solution. So you can expand your visit capacity and your workflow efficiency, get paid for your services so you're not leaving any money on the table, ramp up patient engagement, keep those patients coming back, and eliminate worries about documentation and compliance. To learn more about Redoc and the Complete Revenue Cycle Management Service, check them out at nethealth.com healthy. Now on to today's episode. I am so happy to have my friend Eric Robertson back on the podcast. He has been on several times. Last time we recorded, we were sitting by the beach in Florida. This time was a little different, but if you don't know Eric, he is an APTA spokesman. He is the director of the Kaiser Permanente Northern California Graduate Physical Therapy Education and associate professor of clinical physical therapy at the University of Southern California. Previously, he served as assistant professor of physical therapy at Regis University in Denver. He received a bachelor's degree in physical therapy from Quinnipiac University and a doctor of physical therapy degree from Boston University. He is board-certified clinical specialist in orthopedic physical therapy and a fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists, where he currently serves as secretary on his executive board. Now, today we spoke about residency and fellowships, and I know you're probably thinking, hasn't Karen done this before? And I have, but that was just discussing the difference between them. Today, we talk about the evolution of residency programs, the evolution of fellowship programs, the future standards for residency and fellowship training, sustainable business and education models in the face of growing student debt, and is it okay to be a generalist in physical therapy, and where do residencies and fellowships fit into all of this? So a huge thanks to Eric Robertson for coming on uh, the podcast yet again, and I hope you guys all enjoy. Hey, Eric, welcome back to the podcast. As always, I'm so happy to talk to you and so happy to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me back again. I love being here with you. Awesome. So today we're talking about residency and fellowship training. Eric, what I'd love to do is I'm going to throw it over to you and have you talk, give us a little history on it, where we are and where you see them going, and we'll take it from there. Sure. So the first thing I want to talk about is not just residencies, but also fellowships. And I'd like to do that at the same time, but also separately. And hopefully that will get more clear uh, as why, why I take the moment to separate those two as I go. Uh, because they're different, of course, as you had that whole episode about. Um, but not only are they different in terms of what the content is that make them, but they're different in terms of the considerations around them and the evolutionary path that they've taken, which is something that maybe needs more exploration. So uh, I guess the other thing that I would say is uh, I'm drawing a lot of uh, what I want to talk to you about from uh, a very wonderful lecture. one of my favorite lectures uh, to date that I've ever witnessed. And it was the 18th John H.P. Malley lecture. 
which took place in 2013 at what was then the annual conference. And um, Cornelia Kulig uh, presented that lecture and she did a fantastic job. And the title of that lecture was Residency Education in Every Town, Is It Just So Simple? And that is, uh, of course, like all of these great lectures, they're cataloged in uh, PT Journal. And so you can go ahead and search that. It was in the January 2014 issue. And I highly recommend that anyone who's interested in residency or fellowship education um, or the evolution of it or the reasons that you might want to partake in it uh, should review that article, see the lecture. There's some really cool images that were in the lecture, some growth scales and graphs and um, you'll be smarter for it and uh, Cornelia did a wonderful job uh, and it's still even as you read it it, uh, it shines as a lecture so um, I'm definitely going to go back through that and in one of the very first sections of that lecture she says uh, she defines um, what she thinks is the best preparation for clinical practice and she says that is mentored immersion in patient care uh, and that she said that mentored immersion in patient care is broadly known as a residency and so that's sort of the framework for which we're going to talk about all of this. Does sound good so far? We're tracking? Yep, yep, perfect, got it. Okay, um, I guess the next thing I would say to the listeners is why am I talking to you about this? Why, why, why is Eric Robertson speaking about this? And uh, you know, I would say that I have a, a vested interest in residency education. I am the program director for what was the very first residency program uh, in the United States, which was the Kaiser Hayward program, which is now called the Kaiser Permanente Northern California Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy Fellowship. Boy, they really lengthened that name, huh? They did, yeah. So that, that was an interesting thing. We had, we had all the names, uh, we got uh, the creativity in residency and fellowship naming uh, was sort of eliminated several years ago uh, through some of the accreditation standards. And so you can't have, you know, Karen's phenomenally awesome residency as an option. It would have to be uh, the sponsoring organization, the location, and, and the specialty. And Got it. And if you were listening carefully, you might have heard me say that, I'm the program director for the first residency. And then when I told you what its current name is, that name of the program was a fellowship. And that's one of the first interesting things that happened with residency and fellowship education from the past to the current status. And <clears throat> what happened was that initially, uh, this Kaiser Hayward program was created. It was a residency that was in around 1979. Um, and I think, we should take a moment to acknowledge that the founder of that was Peter Edgelow. Uh, and Peter went to um, Australia and learned with Jeff Maitland, uh, saw some of the mentorship that was happening there, came back, petitioned Kaiser, uh, specifically Kaiser's Community Benefits Division that gives back to the community, and said, we need to do this kind of mentorship here. And at the time, it was very revolutionary, very groundbreaking and innovative. And somehow, uh, I don't know how, because now working at Kaiser, Kaiser is very, very slow making kind of innovative changes like that. And so uh, good on him. He was able to get funding for the program and, and off it went in 1979. And I make a particular point to bring up Peter Edgelow because he passed away about a week ago. Oh, um, and so he sorry. was, uh, yeah, he was, he was, uh, he had lived a great long life. Um, but you know, he was, I think one of the unspoken heroes in the profession in terms of the impact and the legacy that he leads. And so I think it's important to acknowledge his efforts and, and personally how much I benefit from it and also professionally how much we all benefit from it. So 
that first residency started, several others joined shortly thereafter. And so by about 1991, when the uh, American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists were founded, there was about eight residency programs, and they were all called residency programs. Not too long after that, uh, APTA had their first task force for residency and fellowship credentialing as it was called at the time. And essentially it was this group of people that set out to say, what are we doing with this? We're starting to figure out some, some other form of training that's not PT school. It's some clinical education, it may be different. And so there's no standards around it. What do we need to know about them? How do we ensure quality? Uh, how do we develop curriculum? And they did this you know, kind of meeting and they figured it out. And, and at the time they figured out that, well, there's probably two levels of this, right? There's probably a, an earlier level that uh, is for entry level clinicians. And then there's probably another level that's uh, for people who have a certain degree of experience and are seeking that like that finale, that grand, you know, summation of their clinical training. And at that point in time, many of the fellowships or residencies at the time uh, decided they were really fellowships. They were accepting people that had many years of clinical practice. They were challenging them to a really high level. And so that's uh, maybe around 95 or so. The date is sort of... Uh, uh, up in the air exactly, but at some point the Kaiser Hayward residency became the Kaiser Hayward fellowship program and all of those eight fellow residencies became fellowships that formed the uh, the American Academy or the AOMT as we call it. Mm -hmm. And so right now all of the AOMT affiliated programs are all fellowships, right? So they're a subspecialty. There's about 32 or so of those. After that happened, residencies started being born that met the needs of the entry-level clinician. And uh, residency programs started off, and you know, here's where the counting gets weird, because uh, if you look at Cornelia's Malley lecture, she starts out and says, well, there was one residency in 79, there was eight in 91, and then she jumps to around 2013 when she gave the lecture, and she counted 134 residency programs. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's minus the residency programs that converted and then called themselves fellowships, but you get the gist, right? There was very mm -hmm. few and then suddenly a lot. Since 2013, we've had an even you know, more exponential growth. Uh, and so now we have 263 residency programs. Wow. Right. That's a phenomenal number of new programs from 2013 to 2018. Mm -hmm. Fellowships, however, have not had the same growth rate, right? Their growth arc has been rather flat. And uh, the best way to see this is if you go to the website for the APTA entity that accredits residencies and fellowships, that's ABPTRFE, which is one of those acronyms that just ties people's tongues in knots. But ABPTRFE.org has on their homepage a growth chart of residency and fellowship program growth. And you can see the exponential growth of residency programs uh, contrasted really nicely to the relatively flat growth of fellowships. And uh, if we go back, we see that um, there's only 53 fellowship programs total right now. It's a big difference. There's a, a yeah, very, very large difference. Yeah. Uh, the majority of fellowship programs are in orthopedic manual physical therapy, mm -hmm. right? So about 32 of the 53 are, uh, mm -hmm. are that. Uh, residency education is very different, though. You see uh, a lot more specialties represented. Sports residencies are well represented. Neurologic residencies are well represented. Orthopedic is, is probably still the most highly represented. Uh, geriatrics, but there's acute care. There's a whole bunch of stuff. There's even some non-clinical residency programs. What, what are examples of non-clinical residency programs? 
uh, there's a residency program for uh, academic faculty, for example, right, which is, uh, you know, interesting because I don't know if I would, I, I struggle personally with calling uh, that kind of a program a residency. In my head, I think it might be a fellowship, but it, it's a residency. So, mm -hmm. so there it is. It's a residency. Uh, so there are clinical residencies and non-clinical residencies that people can partake. And I think more importantly, um, or maybe because of this, or maybe at the same time, who knows, maybe chicken and the egg scenario, uh, people who are graduating PT school are a lot more aware of the role of residency as part of their clinical and professional development. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, if you went back uh, maybe even three years ago when I was doing some marketing visits for our program, uh, at first, first year students would not know what a residency was. And now I see first year students showing up with like, you know, leather binders, they're dressed in a suit, they look like they're gonna go house hunting in the Bay Area, but no, <laughs> they're just wanting to talk to you early about residencies and figure that out and make a good impression. So there's a demand that's happened for residency program that is very interesting. And is, the, is that same demand there for fellowships as well? Uh, the demand is there for fellowships to a degree. Um, mm -hmm. I would say this though, that uh, there's a certain number of training slots available each year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for argument's sake, there's like 100 training slots. And if you filled all those 100 training slots, you would have perfect demand and supply. Uh, I would say that the number of fellowship slots, at least specific to orthopedic manual physical therapy, has never, um, never met its, you know, the supplies always exceeded the demand. Oh, okay. And so, yeah, they've never actually filled that up. And as a matter of fact, very recently, uh, an arc shifted in orthopedic residencies as well in that the supply seems to be exceeding the demand. Interesting. That is interesting, right? That's why, sort of a, so a why, why do you think that is happening? Uh, you know, if you look at this exponential growth, you can say on one hand, like, well, you can only grow so much, right? So maybe mm -hmm. the number of slots that we have for residency training is enough. Um, I don't know if that argument holds water though, because if you contrast the number of available residency slots, in those 263 programs, um, you know, that doesn't really compare to the, uh, what projected like 10,600 uh, graduates from DPT programs on an annual basis that CAPTI mm -hmm. projects. Mm -hmm. So we still have a very small number of PTs being able to go to residencies, but if, especially in orthopedic supply is dipping, um, maybe there's something there that's a problem. That's not just supply and demand interest. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's something like uh, the business model doesn't support them financially, right? And I right. think that's a, that might be a really good argument. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like if you, have the, if you just graduate from PT school and you're in six figures worth of debt, do you want to go through a residency program? Do you want to not perhaps make the salary you would make if you just were working in a clinic or a hospital or what have you? So I'm right. Sure so that's yeah, it's ex consideration. It's expensive to train residents, and um, you know, I, my cost in my program alone, and, and we're probably on the higher side in terms of uh, our internal cost to train people. Now, this isn't what it costs to attend my residency, but our internal cost is about fifty-five thousand dollars a resident, which is tremendously expensive. But you know, that stands, and that doesn't count their salary, right? Mm -hmm. That's just our faculty hours to do mm -hmm. the mentoring and do all the courses and labs that we have included as part of the curriculum. And we're at a distinct advantage uh, in terms of training, uh, thanks to Kaiser Permanente's Community Benefits Division, because essentially they give us a training grant 
each year. And so the part that, you know, is, is the difference between our $5,000 tuition and the cost of $55,000 is essentially the, the gift that Kaiser is giving back to you as a training grant. And, and you know, I think there's a lesson there. Um, our demand is very high for our particular residency program. And that isn't necessarily to say like, oh, we're great, we're doing a good thing. I, I jumped onto, uh, you know, the podcast to advertise my residency. But what I am saying is that we did not experience the same dip over the past couple of years in demand that generally was seen in orthopedic residency. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, we went the other direction. Uh, we also pay people full salary. And so there's no difference between coming into Kaiser uh, as a staff level, entry level PT and coming in to do our residency program. And I think that's one of the things that we need to talk about as we consider where have residencies been, where you used to have to make really significant financial sacrifices mm-hmm. to go do these things um, and where are they going, right? And, and that's one of the challenges that people have to figure out in residency programs because either you pay a lot of money to, you know, to tuition to fund your training or a clinic needs to take a loss to fund the training or some other thing has to happen like a community grant. Uh, but you know, somewhere some money has to happen to make these things sort of financially viable on a long-term basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, everybody needs to be compensated for their time. Right. Everybody and needs expertise. To be and that's, and that includes the instructors within the residency program and the people that the, let's say new grad physical therapists who enroll in the program. Exactly. And so that's the challenge that we have for residency programs. That same challenge, I think I would argue to a greater degree exists with fellowship programs, mm-hmm. right? Because now you have people who um, have to have completed a residency or be board certified mm-hmm. in order to get into a fellowship program. So now you're taking these people who are, you know, perhaps extremely motivated to have, you know, clinical professional development, uh, guided, you know, mentoring intensive programs, and you're giving them this, you know, financial sort of sacrifice twice. And that could be a challenge. And that change of requiring a residency or uh, a board certification is a very recent change. Okay. As a matter of fact, that goes into effect uh, January 1st, 2020, uh, as part of the most recent standards update from ABPT RFE. Mm-hmm. And it has all of the fellowship programs tied in knots, to be honest with you. Um, we're tied in knots about it uh, from my program. Uh, you know, I'm on the, uh, the board of the AOMPT secretary. And so we interact with a lot of uh, fellowship program directors, and, and many of them have been uh, a grand spectrum of vocal about. Um, about how concerned they are about uh, being able to fill classes with this additional barrier. Uh, the used to be able to just have extensive experience in that mm-hmm. specialty and get mm-hmm. into a fellowship. And, and they took that one away. Got it. Got it. So now you have to either completed a residency or if you're going to do an orthopedic fellowship, do you need to have your OCS? Essentially that's it, right? It's sports, the sports one. Uh, the, uh, you know, it gets a little complicated there to yeah. answer that, but the, um, the essence is that uh, in the description of fellowship practice that defines that subspecialty area, mm-hmm. they uh, define which ABPTS specialties they would consider appropriate for you know, eligibility to take their fellowship. Got it. All right. So that's definitely something new that's happening, not right at this very moment, but in 2020. 
Well, in 2020 is when you need to be compliant. For example, my fellowship program already changed that, right? Okay. So several of, of them already made that change right away when the standards okay. came out. Okay, okay. So what else, what other considerations need to be made as we look maybe more towards the future of residency and fellowships? Well, one of the uh, things that Dr. Cooley cited in her lecture in 2013 was that, you know, she reviewed the literature to prepare for her lecture and she found very few articles on medical residency education and uh, articles and information literature related to physical therapy residency or fellowship education was non-existent. Mm -hmm. And since then, there's only been a couple of articles that have come out. And I would say that's one thing we need to do is actually define the benefit and demonstrate the benefit of this kind of training. And how would you do that? Uh, well, you know, it all starts with funding, right? <laughs> so I think that there, uh, you know, and, and that starts with strategy. And, you know, at this most recent House of Delegates, the mm -hmm. uh, APTA Board of Directors put forth a motion. Uh, and that motion was, you know, on the face of it, that it conferred the House of Delegates authority that, um, you know, ABPTRV was the agency that accredits residency and fellowship program. And the House voted in favor of it. And what that really was about, what that vote really was about, was about resource allocation. And did the House of Delegates want to communicate to the APTA that, yes, we think this is a good investment of association dollars into improving and expanding and streamlining how we accredit these programs? And I think that's a positive, significant step in a strategy that's just forming and just evolving. Mm -hmm. And maybe a next step would be how do we allocate specific funds to promote research and promote, uh, you know, learning about what we're doing in these programs. You know, when, when you had, uh, you know, my friend Mike Body on the program and he's talking about the difference between residency and fellowship education, he's still talking about what his opinion is. We don't really know very clearly from like uh, an outcome standpoint, for example, mm -hmm. what the difference is. Uh, and there's been extremely few, maybe even one outcome study uh, that looked at outcomes clinically for fellowships and residencies. And ironically, in that one study, fellowships were found to improve clinical efficiency, while residency graduates did not. So, Interesting. Yeah, yeah because I, I was on a panel at my alma mater, which is Misericordia University, um, back in April. And mm -hmm. there was another recent graduate on the panel who had gone through a residency program. And one of the students asked a very great question. It was, well, do you feel like because you did that residency, you're now a better PT than PTs who have not? Mm, careful wording there, huh? <laughs> mm -hmm. And he was like, I mean, I feel like I'm better than I was before the residency, which is a great answer. Yes. Um, but like you just said, there's no studies to show that conclusively, if you go through a residency program, you're better. But then how do you define what better is? Right. We don't know what better is. We've, we've understood from a theoretical standpoint what clinical expertise is, mm -hmm. right? And we can build residency programs and the curriculum inside of them uh, from the bedrock of what forms a clinical expert. And we can look at literature that says uh, mentored clinical practice accelerates your professional development. Mm -hmm. Reflecting on your practice accelerates professional development. And those are all components of clinical expertise. And so we can make then an assumption that we're 
enhancing or accelerating the development of clinical expertise, although we've not yet shown that. Mm-hmm. Right. right. I think anybody yeah. anecdotally who looks at a resident who goes through a program and then someone who, does, who doesn't, uh, who's been immersed in the clinic and seen these folks doing some training programs and seeing folks right next to them who haven't, I think it's intuitive that there is a dramatic change, right? It's sort of like, uh, you know, pressure. Like you respond to pressure, like you squeeze a, a rock real hard and you form a diamond kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like residents have gone through that pressure cooker and, uh, you know, they've been shaped and molded a little bit more than people who haven't gone through that stuff. They're just getting more feedback and it's, it's mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of the physics of learning in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. But no, no real outcomes to, to date. Right. No real outcomes to date other than, um, you know, maybe the soft outcomes that we're not looking at. Right. So you, you, it would be a mistake to say, well, if the, you know, if this one article that Rodriguez put out that didn't show clinical efficiency improvements for residency, uh, well, maybe residencies are invaluable. That would be a mistake to mm-hmm. think that. Uh, without also considering what are some other reasons that why we saw that, why we failed to see the benefit uh, as, you, as you measured it that way. And some of those reasons could be that maybe it takes some time to like mature, right? Maybe, maybe no physical therapist that you look at after one year or two years has good clinical efficiency. Mm-hmm. Maybe it takes several years for that to sort of come into its own. And then maybe later the residency group was higher right? Uh, what about the benefit to the profession in terms of if you're in a residency, you're usually, uh, you know, professionally involved, you're exposed to APTA initiatives, you're exposed to, uh, you know, going to conferences and networking. And what does that fabric do to future leaders in the profession? Right? And so maybe the residency uh, is something that, that helps hone our moral compass as a profession. Right. And so the benefits and the areas of benefit that you look at residency and in particular fellowship training might not just be clinical. I think I would argue that they're, they're much more broad than clinical benefit. Mm-hmm. And especially in fellowship training, I mean, it's, you, it's like apples and oranges making a comparison to a fellowship to a residency though, right? Yeah, it really or is. Apples, yeah. Apples to oranges, yeah. I'm not going to say like apples to pears. We'll go with a completely yeah, different but- family of fruit maybe. Yeah, maybe oranges to pluots. I don't know. Yeah. What? So, What's a pluot? We'll come to California and we'll show I you. Feel some like you I feel like you just made that up. Um, no, I thought I did, but one time I was walking through a farmer's market and they actually have them. They'll feed them to you uh, any Sunday morning here. In the what Bay. is it? What is um, it? It's a plum and an apricot mixed together. Oh, it's like yeah, the labradoodle fruit, fruit. Yeah, any fruit you can mash them together hard enough and you come up with a new fruit. So. Huh. All right. Well, if I come out to California, I will have a, what's it called again? A pluot. A pluot. All yes. right. All right. It's on That's my, your mission next time you come to California. Getting back to residencies and fellowships, there are major differences there, most notably in the experience of the person enrolled in the program. Sure. Right? So yeah, there, there's then the strong question, similarities and yeah. differences. Yeah. 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 And so the question that becomes is, if you go through fellowship training, is there any research to show that those fellows are better, quote unquote? Well, yeah. And that would be the essence of that one article that I was kind of mm-hmm. citing, uh, not specifically, but it was in JOSPT in 2015 by uh, Jason Rodriguez et al. And that article showed uh, they measured photo scores and clinical visits. And so they got a measure of clinical efficiency and Mm -hmm. they demonstrated improved clinical efficiency for people who had completed fellowship training. 
Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to read that. How were they, were they using clinical visits as total plan of care or did they account for people who just dropped off and... Yeah, they accounted for all those things. They did yeah. kind of the statistical, you know, uh, safeguards for your data yeah. and, and, you know, they defined an episode of care and mm-hmm. how many visits you took to resolve that episode. All right. Uh, and then yeah. Carol Joe Tishner and I wrote a response, an editorial to that uh, called like post-professional cartography, charting the future of residency and fellowship education. And we delve into some of the nuances of that research study and, and why we saw the benefits and didn't see the benefits in the different places. So mm. uh, both of those things, if you were going to compile a residency fellowship education reading list, uh, the Coolig lecture would maybe be first and those two papers might be a good second follow-up. Okay. And we'll have all of those in the show notes of this episode. So if people want them, we'll have a link to uh, the, a way to get the article. And on that note, we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. PTs, what do you hope to accomplish in 2018? I bet providing even better patient care and increasing revenue are top on the list. First, expand your visit capacity. Then get paid for your services, ramp up patient engagement, and eliminate worries about documentation and compliance. The good news is there's one solution that brings it all to the table. Redoc, powered by XFIT, is a cloud-based, fully integrated EMR and billing solution. Imagine PT billing, coding, compliance experts taking the back office work off your hands and reporting to you. Learn more about Redoc and complete revenue cycle management services at nethealth.com slash healthy. Let's keep talking about sort of future training. I feel like there are now, at least I'm seeing, hybrid models of fellowship and residency, or am I incorrect in that? Yeah, no, you're very correct. Uh, You know, our program is a hybrid model. It started as an in-person model Mm -hmm. and uh, somewhere in the 2000s, they switched it to a hybrid model. And that enabled us to uh, train people all throughout Northern California, even though we're still a local program in Northern California, Northern California is a big place. So we're a hybrid program where our students receive their uh, didactic content primarily online and prior to lab sessions. And then there's a number of lab sessions that happen. And then there's, uh, you know, obviously uh, in-person clinical mentoring. Got it. Okay. And so where, like, how is the landscape changing? What do we need to look out for? What if someone's listening to this and like, I want to do residency or fellowship? Yeah. So here's what I would look at broadly moving into the future. And, And this is really where we should be looking at, you know, what do we need to put in place as a profession to make these things successful? We talked about, you know, doing some research and allocating some funding. We talked about, um, you know, the sort of evolution and growth of ABPTRFE as an organization from a task force way back in, you know, the, the mid nineties to, to now, very recently getting the authorization, you know, the kind of the stamp of approval from the House of Delegates, um, you know, so that that's one part of it. Um, we also have seen now, you know, we talked about the demand not meeting supply in a couple mm-hmm. areas, namely orthopedics. Um, I think there was one other area, um, but it escapes me, but then all, that's for residencies and then orthopedic manual physical therapists, uh, physical therapy fellowships. Uh, the you know the demand didn't meet the supply, and that's weird because broadly, I think less you know two percent. If you use a very conservative number of total physical therapists, yet less than two percent of people have been exposed to residency or fellowship education. And do you think that drop off is because people are just finding other places for continuing education where they feel like they don't have to spend the time on this anymore because there are other outlets or gurus or whatever doing their thing? 
It could be that, right? And I would say that, you know, we should also, you know, not just kind of offhand discriminate against non-accredited programs. Because when I'm- Oh yeah, no, saying, no, no, they're yeah, very good, those, but yeah. Yeah, well, when I'm saying those numbers, I'm, I'm talking about the numbers that ABPTRV is reporting, the APTA mm-hmm. reports that are accredited. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a few more in the pipeline in terms of development. Although when you look at the developing programs, I think those numbers have dropped off too a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so what I, I think has happened is we've had this exponential growth. We've had all of our early adopters are on board, right? And I think moving forward, we're going to see maybe residency and fellowship program growth slow down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And maybe as it slows down, uh, that's probably a good thing. Everybody kind of takes their, you know, catches their breath a little bit and we can focus on quality and we can focus on selecting business models that will work and are sustainable into the future mm-hmm. in light of the debt load that students, you know, carry with them. Sure. Uh, you know, part of that quality would be how do you train mentors, right? And yeah. where does the funding come for that? Because uh, we're talking about residencies paying tuition, we we're, we haven't even started the conversation of, uh, you know, for example, my program, I could keep growing. I had a lot of applicants. I can't grow so fast that I exceed my capacity of qualified mentors. And that's or, my bottleneck, yeah. qualified yeah. mentors. And it takes a while to train a, bottle, you know, a qualified mentor. They need to have completed their own you know, professional development process. Uh, and then once they've done that and got, they've gotten good at clinical practice, well, then you need to start the process of educating them on how to be a clinical educator and a mentor. Yeah, and that takes work. And resources, right? And so we're back again to you know, maybe this plea to the APTA. Where's, you know, help us with some strategy. Help us with some initiatives. Let's innovate. Let's continue to uh, really focus on how we grow these things. And as we do that, let's make sure that we stop referring to these programs as residency and fellowship programs. Let's talk about residency programs as its own bucket. And then let's talk about fellowship programs as its yeah. own bucket. Yeah. Because when yeah. you tell me that residency and fellowship program growth has been exponential since the you know, early 2000s, I will say no. Residency program growth has been exponential. Fellowship program growth is very, very different. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So making that clear delineation between the two. Sure, right. sure. So, you know, I feel like we're talking about some of those stressors at the moment, one of, one of them being more supply than demand. But what are some other stressors at the moment involved in residency and fellowship? You know, there's geography challenge, right? So you may not live where, um, where there are residency programs. So uh, in Cornelia's Mali lecture, uh, and in, even in the, the handout uh, that they have on PG Journal, there's a nice graph of where all the residencies are located, and predictably, they're coastal urban centers. So unless it's a hybrid program, you can't go to it if you live maybe in the Midwest. Sure. So, you know, that's where the bolus of PTs are located. Uh, and it's a challenge to have physical therapy coverage throughout the United States. You can imagine then the uh, epicenters of excellence that can train physical therapists in residency and fellowship that's even more limited. And so one argument would be that DPT programs should have, all have maybe residencies, right? They should be linked to uh, you know, a clinic. And there was you know, this uh, great big study that came out earlier, I guess it was this year, maybe it was last year, but it was you know, a study of excellence in physical therapy education. And uh, you know, Gail Jensen was the lead author on that, but it was a really phenomenal group. Um, you know, Terry Nordstrom is that, Laurie Hack was in that. And, um, and they, they put out the study and, and one of the characteristics of excellent training programs was that they had a clinical side. Right. And it was that they were focused on this clinical education piece as a real uh, standard for their their mission. And so 
think of the growth that we could have in residency programs and fellowship programs if we started linking them to our training centers that already exist. And training centers that already exist, meaning existing physical therapy programs? Right. Okay. Right, which are more geographically spread out than our current collection of residencies and fellowships. Yeah, for right? sure. Yeah, so here's a great example. I used to teach at the University of Texas, El Paso. And El Paso is a wonderful town. They have a small physical therapy program. They train, I think now they're training about 40 students a year, but they used to train even less than that. And most of those students stay in El Paso. El Paso doesn't have a residency program. El Paso doesn't have a fellowship program. And so, you know, very few people live in El Paso have completed residency or fellowship training programs purely from geography. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a couple who have done it, who have left and gone and gotten training either through hybrid programs or other places. Um, and right away, you know, they shine in the community and it's, and it's nice to see, but you know, there's just not that many of the hybrid programs for people to do. Got it. Got it. So, um, geographic location, more supply than demand, uh, what else are some of those kind of pain points right now that you feel like could be addressed? You know, I think uh, the financial thing might not be able to be addressed, but I, that you have to acknowledge that that's a, a really big pain point mm -hmm. for people. You know, some people literally just cannot afford to do a residency. However, there's an opportunity for relief there. Uh, you know, when you go to graduate school, you're allowed to put your student loans on deferment. Right, you get this happy, you know, 1098 form, uh, 1098E. That's you know, it says you can defer your loans, and that happens when you're in a program that's approved by the Department of Education. Well, ABPTRV, the accrediting agency, is not that yet, right? So maybe if they go that route and they get approved, then that's something that when people do residencies or fellowships, they can defer their student loans. Okay, and that would be a phenomenal opportunity that we should seize. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a no-brainer, actually. Right. right. So how do, how do you have to make that? What do you have to do to make that happen? I think the House delegates need to stamp their approval, so they did that. And now we, uh, now we just all get to have some popcorn and watch it happen. Got maybe, it. Maybe there's some workers doing some work on that that may be maybe a little bit more complicated than just having popcorn. But for us, not inside the, the wheels and the churnings, it just seems like wait and see. Okay. And then what about different educational models? So I know that there is talk about uh, just kind of attaching a residency onto sort of that entry-level DPT program, correct? Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, as we mature the residency and fellowship landscape, we can see what models are really strong and, and which aren't. And, and you know, the, the wonderful thing that you see as you look through and across all these different programs is there's a tremendous diversity in the models of programs, the relationships to clinics, you know, what people have innovated along the way to make it work. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a testament to, you know, the ingenuity of people in our profession. It's a testament to the passion of people in our profession who are really committed to training uh, on clinical side. And, you know, you can look at one program, for example, like uh, Mercer University has a, a really neat, uh, you know, collection of clinics that, uh, you know, our partners with their residency. So their residency is housed in the university and they have these clinical, you know, a clinical network of partners that, that go through the area. Um, you can look at the Kaiser Northern California residency and fellowship program and the Southern California one, and they're totally different, right? One's innovated, you know, a different way according to the clinic needs and one's innovated a different way. Uh, and so, you know, part of that, we're going to find models that work better than other models. We're going to find ways to 
get scale to these things, right? There's a lot of efficiency and scale, and that's probably a component of what we will discover along the way. Uh, maybe we come up with these national training programs for mentors, right? Maybe there's, uh, you know, we have a, a fellowship in mentoring, for example. Yeah, because being a mentor is not just showing people what to do. No, no, it's not. It's um, it's helping them become the best version of themselves, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know, applying and translating evidence into practice, and using all the tools of an educator to achieve that. So assessing the learner, you know, uh, providing you know, ever complex objectives for them to achieve on a week to week and on a long term basis, mm-hmm. and you know, learning how to give feedback that uh, builds and doesn't destroy and and all those kind of things. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's a little more complicated than just, oh, I'm going to sit and listen to people and ask them how their week was, and then I'm going to give them some advice. Right. And, and you know, it's, and, and mentoring inside of a, a residency or a fellowship is, is unique in the sense that it's tied to the curricular arc of the, didact- the didactic program. It's tied to, you know, an arc of your clinical goals. And, and you know, there's benchmarks through the program that uh, you're, you're setting for people. And so it's this immersive experience, but it's, it's linked to things that are, that are also strategic and intentional. Did we miss anything? Where... Where yeah, are I, we I guess we, we alluded what? to Go ahead. Uh, this one other thing. We alluded to the fact that hybrid models could be a solution to some things, and I think mm-hmm. they can be, uh, although those, you know, they take some resources to build a hybrid plat- platform. And um, you know, right now I'm not sure that there's a financial model that's viable enough in residency education to help that along. In, in you know, graduate school, there is that. There's high tuition costs. There's enough resources that, you know, the university can invest in learning platforms Mm -hmm. uh, and those kind of things. And and for smaller residencies and fellowships, that's a real big challenge for them to have those kind of resources. So that would be another, you know, way that we could innovate is to try to come up with a way to uh, allow this hybrid model to maybe propagate a little bit more. And who's doing it well? Who's doing that hybrid model well in residency or fellowship at this point? Uh, I would say, you know, I went through the Evidence in Motion uh, Fellowship Program, and, you know, they have a a robust fellowship program, a robust residency program, Mm -hmm. and um, they really push the envelope for hybrid education in residency and fellowship programs. Uh, And so, you know, I think that would be, you know, you should give them some credit there for that. Uh, I think, you know, as uh, a biased observer, we do it well here in Northern California. We have this hybrid program, although, you know, our funding model limits us to Northern California. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Regis University has a, a hybrid fellowship program that, uh, you know, is nationwide, right? And they've been doing it well for a long time. And so there uh, are models that, that are hybrid that are, that are doing well, you know, and, and I'm not in any way saying that hybrid is the only way to do it. I'm just saying that we may have an opportunity of scale with hybrid, uh, but I also would be sad if we lost some of those in-person, you know, fellowships that are more traditional and, and mm-hmm. you live there, you know, maybe the Army Baylor programs comes to mind for that as a, a phenomenal fellowship program that's, mm-hmm. that's really strong. Yeah, and I think it also depends on the way you want to learn. So I think totally. that there's still going to be those, I think there's going to be a program for everyone because everyone learns differently. Absolutely. Right. And then, you know, that's what we screen for when we're looking for applicants is, you know, not just who's the best applicant, but who's the right fit for our program philosophy and our mission and our culture. Yeah, for sure. Because not everybody, you can't be everything to everybody. 
Correct. And I would also implore people just in general, whether or not you're going to do residency training or fellowship training, uh, just to, you know, try to make yourself more aware of, you know, sort of what's going on in the field. And, and that's why I wanted to come on and talk to you today about this it was, you know, just in an effort to sort of educate everybody. Cause I think uh, one of the things I learned going through this recent house of delegates, you know, as a California delegate is that as I talk to people from my delegation, from other delegations around the country, uh, people were generally unaware uh, of residency fellowship education and the unique issues that reside in that landscape. That's surprising to me. It's not surprising to me, right? So there's the, the total number of graduates of residency programs to date reported on the ABPTRFE site is 3,901. The total fellowship graduates is 1,767. And we have at a minimum 150,000 physical therapists in the nation. Oh, I think it's more, yeah. Yeah, it's probably closer to 200,000, right? Yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very small percentage of people. It's a very small percentage have actually been exposed to this. All right. Well, kudos to you then for bringing it to the House of Delegates and getting educating more people, talking to more people, and and trying to raise some awareness around these programs and the options that are available to possible applicants. Yeah, and it's it's you know it's it's yeah the options that are available, but I think it's it's more. It's like planning as a profession. Like, what's our next step forward? And you know, it's it's not good if that profession, if only one part of the profession is taking that step forward, right? You know, this should be something that um, that keeps growing because there is such you know kind of intuitive benefit to clinical training programs that are coordinated and accredited and meet a quality standard. Uh, you know, look at medical education, they're mm -hmm. fully immersed and their whole educational model uh, has the stress points changed throughout it, right? They expose people as an educational model early in medical school because they don't need to seek high levels of competency in medical training. They achieve that competency in residency training. Right. And right now, as physical therapists, you know, we're training generalists who are not prepared to necessarily practice in specialty areas. And we have to achieve this competency early in PT school, makes it very stressful, makes it very challenging. Uh, but then you're done and you're still a generalist. And so then you have to go through another process of competency to get competency in advanced practice. And so, you know, maybe down the road, it's going to take a while. Um, but, you know, in the, uh, you know, clinical practice task force that was uh, published last year as a report to the board of directors, you know, they floated the idea of mandatory residency training. So it's on the radar. Um, and, you know, I think everybody should start thinking about it and talking about it. And, you know, maybe as a collective mind, we understand uh, where to go forward. Yeah. And I think then the, the next question becomes, like, if you are in an area that's more rural or not as densely populated, like our coastal cities. I mean, you're in outside of San Francisco, I'm in New York. And let's say they're in, we're both from, well, you're from New Jersey, I'm from Pennsylvania, still pretty densely populated. But let's say we keep going more towards the, the middle of the country, or maybe the population's not as dense. And you are a physical therapist, you've been practicing for a couple of years, and you're a really good generalist. Is it worth it for you to be so specific in a specialty where maybe you're the only one within a 50-mile radius? So uh, maybe we're just waiting for that person to come along and form a residency program in rural health, right? 
the specialties that we have now aren't the only specialties that need to exist for all of time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We can, you know, make new specialties and we can make new subspecialties and rural health has its own specific challenges to it, right? Like the, some of the therapists I know in rural health, though, you know, people I used to teach at the Medical College of Georgia and some of those folks have gone into like South Georgia or Middle Georgia and they practice there and, you know, they'll call me up and, and get some advice, you know, from the time that I was their instructor, we've developed, you know, kind of mentor-mentee relationship. And one day they'll call me and they'll ask about an ACL rehab protocol and the next day they'll call me and ask about wound care. Right. And, you know, the next day is pelvic health and the next day is like, you know, how to get a fish hook out of somebody because they don't have any other way to do it. Um, right, right. So, you know, there, there's a, you know, a wonderful specialty there in that, but it's not represented by residency currently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's an opportunity there to, to continue to develop our landscape. I had this conversation the other day with a, a new graduate and he said, what's wrong with being a generalist? They make it seem like it's a bad thing if you're not working specifically on one area or one genre. Yeah, that's a great debate in physical therapy. And I think, you know, we're still learning it. We're still debating it. And it's like this big, long, slow debate that's been happening for a long time. And, you know, inherently, there's nothing wrong with a generalist uh, at all, if that's your practice, right? If your practice is primarily orthopedics, but you're a generalist, then there's some things you're not using and maybe some opportunity for learning that you haven't done. And so there's an efficiency that you can gain. And just like, uh, you know, medicine has generalists and specialists, I feel like a, a mature physical therapy workforce also has those things. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends on who your clientele is, where you live, who you're seeing, so on. And, and, so on. and, and you know, um, you can be a generalist after having gone through a specialty residency. Right. There's no reason you can't go back and learn the efficiencies or apply the efficiencies that you obtained with clinical reasoning, with leadership, um, with, you know, communication, uh, you know, reviewing uh, your reflective practice. Right. You're a clinical scientist. Go back and apply that wherever you'd like to. Right. Just because you did an orthopedic residency doesn't mean you're married to orthopedics for the rest of your life. Right. And, you know, that's where I really love fellowship training is that, you know, you do the clinical practice, but then there's this enhanced focus on scholarship and on, you know, being coming stewards of the profession and of the specialty in which you practiced. And that's, that's one of those things that makes fellowship training really special to me. And, and, you know, really close to my heart is that I feel like, uh, you know, the fellows that we train become the, the colleagues and the leaders of tomorrow uh, to an even greater degree than do the residents that we graduate who are, are efficient uh, practitioners. So you're saying that it goes beyond the clinical work. Absolutely. Uh, but I would also say that not everybody has to go do a, a residency. You know, we're not mature enough as a profession. There's not enough capacity to train mm-hmm. all 10,000 graduates every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the financial and professional development goals and whatever equation that you're solving, uh, you know, that, that equation is very personal. And I never try to tell people you have to do a residency or you have to do a fellowship. You know, I, I leave it up to them to uh, decide what, what, what solves their equation? For any new grad listening, it's all about you and your lifestyle and your, as an individual and what do you feel like you need at the mo- in the moment? Yeah, and I would encourage, you know, if you are a new grad listening, you know, go reach out to a program director who's a residency program director or a fellowship program director mm-hmm. and talk to them, you know, and there's not an obligation to go to their program. There's not an obligation to, uh, you know, go apply to their program, but, you know, they're just inherently people who like to give to the profession. And so they'd be happy to sit and talk with you and to, you know, kind of mentor you along that decision-making process. Nice. All right. So 
before we wrap things up, what are your key takeaways for people? Key, key takeaways is that, uh, you know, we've had this exponential growth in residency education. We've had uh, steady, slow growth in fellowship education. I think we need to consider them differently. I think we're at uh, maybe a flexure where the growth sort of slows a little bit. And we focus on quality and trying to come up with sustainable business models. Uh, we're at a, a maturation point in terms of how we accredit, how we process these programs. And so there's still a lot of learning that we have to do uh, from the APTA level, from the programs level. Uh, so there's, you know, what, what exists today is not gonna be what exists tomorrow. And, uh, you know, with the uh, idea of mandatory residency sort of on the horizon, I think, it, it, you know, I'd implore everybody to, to make themselves a little bit smarter about this aspect of our profession. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on and adding more to my growing uh, catalog on residency and fellowship. Well, uh, that's good that you have a growing catalog. You're already doing what I just implored everyone to do. So uh, I know it's you. growing. It's growing. <laughs> so before we end, what it, what advice would you give to yourself as a new grad? So knowing where you are in your life and in, in the physical therapy world, what advice would you give yourself as a new grad? Oh, that's a challenging question for me because, you know, when I was a new graduate of a physical therapy program, I was convinced I was not going to be a physical therapist. I was ready to switch careers uh, because I was very afraid of several things. I was afraid of uh, boredom and monotony in clinical practice. I was afraid that it wasn't going to be challenging enough for me. And uh, I was ready to switch professions. I actually went through PT school telling all my professors I wasn't going to be a PT. I don't know how they passed me. But lucky for me, they did. And I think what I would go back and tell myself was many of those things I was afraid of, the solution is mentored clinical practice and residency and uh, adding that academic approach and that scientific approach to your practice uh, and developing the network of professionals and you know, entering into a community of learning. Uh, that happens kind of as you go through these programs, I would tell my entry-level self, uh, all the things you're afraid of, you can solve going through this pathway and things will be okay. And I wouldn't have maybe wasted, you know, 10 years of just hopping between jobs for a while. Okay. Where can people find you? Uh, people can find me in a lot of different places. So um, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. It's at Eric Robertson. Um, you can find me through our website at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California uh, for our residency and fellowship program, which is kp.org slash graduate PT education. And then you can also find me through the work I'm doing uh, at the new hybrid program at USC. Uh, and that's the DPT at USC program. And of course, the, uh, you know, the USC program, you can find that uh, at pt.usc.edu. So there's lots of different places you can find me. Um, you can always find me at conferences, bump in, say hello, and uh, that'll be it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on again, Eric. Always a pleasure. Always um, a pleasure. Although the last time we talked, we were in a beach in Florida. The, you know, know. This time it's in the evening. We're I far know. away from each other. So I know. Uh, next time, let's, let's up our setting again. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Although your setting looks, well, a little better than mine. It's just it's still nice. daylight here. It's because it's daylight now. <laughs> <laughs> but it does look better. All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. A huge thanks to Dr. Eric Robertson. And of course, a thank you to our sponsor, NetHealth. So NetHealth, again, is Redoc powered by XFIT, which is a 
cloud-based, fully integrated EMR and billing solution, plus you can opt in to completely outsourced billing services. That's the best way to optimize your revenue. So imagine PT billing, coding, and compliance experts taking the back office work off your hands and reporting to you. It allows you to do the things that you are an expert in, and that's treating your patients and running your practice. To learn more about Redoc and the complete revenue cycle management services, check them out at nethealth.com slash healthy. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.